Parshat Nitzavim. I had a battalion commander. His name is Eyal Ruveni. After being a battalion commander in officer's course, he went on eventually to become a brigade commander. Eventually, I believe he was an Ugdonir division commander, which is an, a very high rank in the Israeli army. He actually eventually became a Haver Knesset in the Labor Party. Um, and he was a pretty impressive individual. I certainly don't agree with all of his politics, but a very impressive individual. And he told us on the first day of officer's course the following story. Okay? In the Yom Kippur War, he was part of the forces down in the Sinai Desert. <coughs> when the Yom Kippur War, you know, after Sukkot, we're going to go up to the Golan. And I'm going to take you to Emekabacha, to the Battle of the Valley of Tears. It is the only teal, I think, maybe one of two teal in all year that I tell the Shana guys, you have to come back. This you need Chazaran. And we will, um, we'll be in one of the most intense places I know in this planet. So we'll hear the story of the Golan. But we don't usually get to talk much about the story in the Sinai. There were exactly three Israeli tanks on the Suez Canal on what was known as the Barlev Line when hundreds of thousands of Egyptians, Egyptian commandos, Egyptian forces, crossed on pontoon bridges over the Suez Canal and overwhelmed the Israeli line. Now, the advantage in the, in, in the Sinai was that there were about 120 kilometers of buffer zone until you got up to Beersheba. So they began to pour anybody they could get, units down into the desert to try to halt the Egyptians. And Eyal Ruveni was a tank driver. Maybe that's why I remember the story, because that's how I started out. And um, he found himself in a centurion tank, a shot, okay, it's centurion, it's a British tank. And they were very quickly in the thick of the fighting. One of the challenges of the Sinai campaign was that the Egyptians had um, the new Sagar anti, was it Sagar? Or RPG, I think it was Sagar anti-tank missiles. Um, and these were uh, scary. I mean, this is a nasty little toy. It'll blow a hole in the side of the armor. And then it shoots a stream of lead inside and basically explodes everything it touches. Now, the armor that we had was totally open. That there was, it was like peeling it away like a tuna can. So you knew that if you saw one of these, you know, one of these uh, RPG units or Sagarente tank units, you knew that you had to get out of your tank. Now, he was a driver. The British made the Centurion tank. There's a reason that they lost the war. You know the war I'm talking about, right? Like July 4th. My mother's English. Every year on July 4th, we remind her who won the war. You know, you gotta do that. She says, what war? We go through that. Okay, right? She's eight or nine, we still do that. Anyway, the British designed this tank. Now, the driver's compartment is arguably the place that needs the most protection. Because when you go into battle, it's the driver who's in the front. So he's gonna get hit first, probably. So there's a lot of armor on the driver's compartment. And what they did was they put two iron grill doors one closes, the other closes on top of it, and thick iron that protects the driver. What was the problem? The problem was, they didn't think it through. The driver inside the compartment, when he needed to get out, couldn't get out. It was too heavy. So the way they solved this problem in the Israeli army was, first of all, they had to turn the tank turret, right? They had to turn it so there was a 90 degree angle. Because if the gun is on top, you can't get it open. That's scary issue number one. Let's say the commander turns it aside. He still can't get it open. The loader's job was to jump down 
and help the driver. He would pull, the driver would push, and they would get it open and he would get out. And this was something you practiced if there was a fire, if there was an emergency, whatever it might be. So they were in the Yom Kippur War. And his tank was hit by an anti-tank weapon and it explodes and it's on fire. And the commander, in the last instance, sees this coming and screams the order, abandon tank. Now you practice abandoning a tank, okay? And whether you're a commander or a gunner or a loader, you know exactly what you have to do to get off the tank, right? So a good tank crew can get out of a tank in two to three seconds, right? And that's not an easy thing to do. You have to practice again and again and again, and it's exhausting. For whatever the reason, I don't know, because he didn't tell us the story, was the loader killed? Did he just forget in his panic? But the tank's on fire, everybody abandoned the tank, and he was stuck in the driver's compartment. Now, thank God the commander, because it's an automatic thing when you give the order abandoned tank. You practice this again and again. If you forget to do this in your drills, you get stuck behind for Shabbat. If you're a tank man, you know how to do this in your sleep. So he says, you know, right? Ikonu, right? Abandoned tank, turns the sword aside and gets out. That's his job. So the gun was turned to the right direction, but he's inside this tank and he can't get out. And the tank's on fire. And he understands if he doesn't get out in a minute, he's going to either burn alive or it's going to explode. He's a dead man. There's no way out of this. But he can't get the tank door open. And he knows you can't get it open because that's why they have this drill. But he's a short guy. He makes me look tall. He was like 5'1", five, 5'2", five, right? Piece of muscle, but... So he does something unbelievable. And they have to understand, a, 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 a driver's compartment is this little area like this. You know, when you sit in a car seat, you feel like you're sitting. But if you would take, if you would take everything off and just be sitting here, you'd realize you're sitting pretty low down. <laughs> That's nothing compared to a tank. Your feet are up here, you're in this tiny little compartment, and this is what it's like. But because he's so little, he manages to maneuver himself upside down on the stool, put his feet against the grill doors, push with all his might, and somehow he gets one of the doors open. And he gets out of the tank literally just in time till it explodes. When the war was over, this was obviously a powerful memory for him, and it stuck with him he realized that he had discovered something valuable. He had discovered a way for a tank driver to get out of a tank in an emergency. So he wanted to share this. But he said, in order to share this, I gotta see if this works. So afterwards, when he was in sergeant's course, he tried to see what the best way was to do it, and he couldn't do it. And he told us, I tried this multiple times. I never succeeded again in getting those tank doors open. So I'm issuing a challenge to the whole battalion. Now we're in an officer's course, okay? It is, the, the tank officer's course is the most intense, it's one of the most intense courses in the Israeli army. It was certainly the most difficult experience I ever had. And I mean including war. It was a horrible, horrible time. You slept two or three hours a night, it was unbelievable, right? Anybody who succeeds, you know, you're in an officer's course, it's honor. I mean, you know, you don't make this stuff up. Anybody who comes to me and says that they succeeded, but someone else, right, that can say they did it, they succeeded in getting those grill tank doors open on their own, he'll get a free weekend pass from me, guaranteed. So we all look around. I cannot tell you how many Thursday nights at the end of the week, cleaning the tanks with all the muck and the mire and the exhaustion, we weren't in Centurion tanks, we were in Magachim and Patton's, but there was one mishtach that all the Centurions, we would go down there, and the Centurion guys would laugh because they knew the, the jig, and I tried six, seven times, never succeeded in getting it open. 
the end of the course, on the last day, right? About to get our bars. For me, this is after a month of mechin, of a grueling preparation to see if you get into officer's course, and four and a half months of infantry <coughs> officer training, and four months of tank officer school, and again four months of tank officer school. You're talking about over a year of training. We're finally about to get our bars, and he gathers the whole battalion together. And he says, anyone who succeeded in getting the tank doors open, raise your hand. So we all look around to see who did it. Not a single guy raised their hand. He said, how many of you tried? Every single cadet raised their hand. How many of you tried more than once? Every single cadet raised their hand. Of course, for a weekend pass, why not? Not a single person. He looked at us and he said, sometimes there's a will deep inside yourself that comes out when you need it. There are things that are deep inside us and we don't know they're there. What do we do with that? How do we cultivate that? I want to share with you a powerful idea based on this week's portion. On this week's parasha, right? Parashat Nitzavim. And this idea had a big impact on me. And I think as we enter deeper into the month of Elul, and we get closer to Yom Adin Rosh Hashanah, and this whole month is about taking stock of ourselves, I think this is a powerful idea. This is not just an idea for now, this is an idea for life. So listen to this idea. Sefer Dvarim Parashat Nitzavim. Okay? You remember that last week... For those of you on Shabbat who came to the Absalom Shir, we heard a very difficult portion. Right? I told you that for me, I relate to that Perek Chavchet, the 28th chapter of Dvarim through the Holocaust. You'll become mad. Right? Your, 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 your children will be sold as slaves. Your land will be destroyed. Harb. And then we get to Parashat Mitzavim. Atem Mitzavim Ayom. Kulchen. You're still standing. After all the challenge. Now, whether that means now you're still standing, or whether it means you'll still be standing, right? You're still standing. And Rashi, right, understands that Moshe Rabbeinu is offering them words of comfort. Because this has been terrifying. Everybody, right? Right? Everybody here is standing, Right? And Moshe wants to give them words of comfort because it's scary. Imagine if I tell you this, I just want you to know. You know what? I remember the first day of our mechim. Before you go to officer's course, there's a month course that you have to do to get into officer's course. Every chel, every uh, section of the army um, gets to send a a certain number of candidates, of cadets. And we, you know, the tank corps is no different, the armored corps, and they need officers. And there's a lot of investment to send somebody in. You don't want to waste that spot and someone's going to fail. So you want to be sure that the guys you send are going to succeed, right? A, because you need them all to succeed, because otherwise there won't be enough officers. And B, because it doesn't make you look good, I guess. So there were 80 spots for officers course in the armored corps that year, in our course, right? 250 of us were invited to do the mechim. And the guy stands up on the first day and he says, understand that there are 250 of you. We only have 80 spots. That means that 170 of you will fail. So let's find out if you want this badly enough. Can you imagine how that feels? It's pretty depressing. And you, you get kind of weak. and You're not sure what to do. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu says. So he says, now I'm going to give you a little comfort. 
right? Ki atem yadatem, you know, right? Perek haftet pasuk tetvav. Asher yashavnu b'eretz Yisrael, that we were in Egypt. Ve'et asher avarnu b'kerov ha'goyim, asher avatem, and you know what we've been through. After passing through all the nations, you're still standing. We went through the Bashan, we conquered Og, we conquered Sichon, we had our issues with the Moabites, with the Amorites, with the Edomites, we had to lose the, the, the Egyptians, we fought Amalek, we had the sin of the spies, we had the sin of the God. It's been a long journey. And now, right? And you saw all their idolatry and all their paganism and what we have to, what we're trying to distance ourselves from, why the world needs a different type of society. And then comes the following pasuk. This is an unbelievable pasuk. Penyesh bachem, ish o isha. Lest there be amongst you a man or a woman, o mishpacha, o shevet, or a family, or a whole tribe, asher levavo porne ayom me'im Hashem alokeinu, whose heart is turning away from God, Maybe there's still an idolater amongst you. Do we have any idol worshippers here? Not a very comforting thing to say. Right? Lest there be amongst you a root of like wormwood. Is there anybody here who's a disgusting piece of manuval shkots? Busha vecherpa shmutzlaritz. I don't know. What is this doing here? Why is Moshe Rabbeinu, in the midst of what Rashi describes as words of comfort, what's he trying to say here? Right? Now, there are some who say that when Moshe stands up and says, and Rashi says, this is words of comfort, he's actually not talking about this. He's talking about what comes next, which is Periklamid. Right? And after after all the blessings and curse come to pass, you will return, you'll come back, and God will gather you, and all the stuff that I told you about last week, that it'll be good. But that's not Pshat in the Pasuk. And that doesn't seem to make sense in Rashi. So what is this doing here, number one? How is this comforting? And even more interesting, who are we talking about here? Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, okay, any idolaters among you, we're going to root you out. Who could there be? Who's an idolater now? After everything they went through. In fact, if you look in Perak Dalet in Devarim, right? Perak Dalet, Puzzle Gimel, 4-3, pretty easy one to remember. Your eyes have seen what Hashem did to the Midianites at Baal Pa'ol. Whoever followed the last of the idolatrous moments of the Jewish people, Hashem wiped him out from amongst you. And the commentators explain, this is an amazing moment. There are no more idolaters among the Jewish people. Those amongst the Erev Rav, that mixed multitude that kind of came out of Egypt and went along for the ride, that caused us a lot of problems, they're rooted out now, we're done. We have no idolaters here. This is very comforting. This is the parsha of the Ten Commandments, the parsha of Shema. This is great. So how come now, Moshe Rabbeinu says, maybe amongst you, there's a root of idolatry. So I want to share with you an idea. Ravigdor Nevensal, we will talk about him more this year, suggests Moshe Rabbeinu is not talking 
about somebody that's doing something wrong. Moshe Rabbeinu is talking about somebody who is, you want to take a guess? Thinking something wrong. It's not that anybody's doing anything. It's that somehow someone might have this idea deep in their heart that they still want to do something wrong. Right? So like, if I walk into a room and, I don't know, the Shiwitz Rebbe, you know, stands up and says, I got 50 bucks anybody want. And somebody else says, well, wait a second. Where'd you get the 50 bucks from? And he says, oh, I stole it from you. It's like, what? Like, we're in Shiva. You can't do that. But what if somebody doesn't steal? He just wants to steal. This is not about what you do. This is about asher levavoponet. It's whether there's a root that wants to do something that you're not supposed to do. And I will give you a fantastic example of this. Okay? In Breshit, maybe you remember this story. Hashem comes, right, sends two messengers, angels, three angels. And he says to Avram Avinu, Remember the story? You're going to have a son a year from now. How old is Avram Avinu? Anybody know? At that moment? 99. He's 99 years old. So that means, how old is Sarah? 89. She's 89 years old. She's old as my mother. Okay? If somebody told my mother she's about to have a child, my mother would look at him like, you're out of your mind, you need to get help. Right? Avram Avinu, right? What does it say? Okay? There will be a son. Your wife is going to give birth. Right? Now, this isn't just incredible because she's 89. You know, the rabbis love to have fun. Whether this is literal or allegorical, oh my God, she was so old. She was so old, she didn't even have a uterus anymore. Like, this is impossible. If you're going to do a miracle, do it big. She's at the entrance of the tent and she hears this. And they don't see that she's standing there. And they're old. She, she doesn't even remember the last time she had a period. She's, she's done with this stuff. And Sarah laughs. After I finished and I'm old, I'm going to have a child? This makes no sense. So Hashem says to Avram, why did Sarah laugh? Now, this is a strange dialogue. Well, you're God. You know why Sarah laughed. And by the way, the reason she laughed is because, because that's ridiculous. She's 89 years old. You just told her she's going to have a kid. And why does it matter if she laughs? Why does she laugh, think she's, this is like crazy, I'm not going to have a baby? Could anything be hidden from Hashem? You don't think Hashem could do this? Just know, I will come back and Sarah will have a child. Now that sounds like Hashem is taking Your wife's got something going on, but I'll be back, don't worry. I got this. Next Pasuk. It appears that Avram tells Sarah, this is what Hashem said. So what does Sarah do? And Sarah denies this, saying, Lotzachakti, kiyareya. She, I didn't laugh because she is Yareya. What does Yareya come from? The word Yira. What kind of Yira are we talking about? If we're talking about 
Yirat Hashem. We need to understand that. And Avram says, Lo Kitzachak, no, you left. Now let's take a moment about this. First of all, why does Hashem care if Sarah laughs? But second of all, even more interesting, how could Sarah, who's a Navi, she's a Niviyah, not only is she a prophetess, but the Gemara says she's on a higher level than Avram. Hashem says to Avram, Kol asher tomar sarat When Sarah understands that Hagar has to be told to leave with Yishmael, for whatever the reasons, as difficult as it is to Avram, because Avram's an Ishchesed, it's painful for him to have to discipline with cruelty. Hashem says, no, 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 Sarah's a great interview, you've got to listen to her. And that, by the way, is a paradigm for successful marriages, but whatever. Right? Hmm, you'll see. Right? So God says that Sarah left. And Avram realizes this must be important. So he says to Sarah, you left. So it's not left. He says, you yeah, know, you left. She's a Navi. She's lying. This makes no sense. So listen to this. Sarah's a Navi. She's a Nivea. She's a prophetess. If Sarah says she didn't laugh, she didn't laugh. Avram's a Navi. Hashem said she laughed. If Hashem said and Avram says she laughed, she laughed. What is the only way to reconcile those two things? She laughed in her head. She didn't know she laughed. It's the only way to reconcile that. What does that mean, she didn't know she laughed? It means that she had a character flaw that was so deep inside her, it was so barely there, that she didn't even know she had it. But Hashem knows she has it. And Hashem says to her, this laughter, this laughter is dangerous. This laughter is the potential for cynicism, for doubt. You're not just an ordinary woman. You're going to be the mother of the Jewish people. You need to find this character flaw and excise it from yourself. You cannot let this flaw grow. Sometimes there are things so deep inside, we don't really know they're there, but they're there. I'll give you another example. And I'm not going to take time to look this up and show you the mucker and say for Shmuel, but it's a powerful example. So Hashem says to Shmuel Anavi, Ma'asti, I'm done with King Saul. He's made mistakes, whatever. He's not going to be the king anymore. Who's going to become the king? Nope, that's not what he says. Ben Yishai. There's a man called Yishai. Yishai, according to the Gemara, is one of four individuals who never did a chait. Whether that's literal allegorical, never question. Yishai is a palindrome, just like David, going backwards and forwards. That's leadership. Okay? David is a name of leadership. But Hashem doesn't tell Shmuel and Navi that it's going to be David. He just says the son of Yishai. So what does Shmuel do? Shmuel goes to the house of Yishai, knocks on the door, says, listen, I know this is sound funny, but I am Shmuel and Navi. Hashem says, your son is going to be king. Please bring him to me. So Yishai says, sure. And he calls his son, his older son, whose name is, anybody know? Do you know his name? You know why you don't know his name? Because this is the only story about him. His name is Eliav. Eliav, my father, my, my God is my father. He has a close relationship with Kosh Baruch He's the son of Yishai, he's the brother of David Melech. He's not like Benny Friedman, some grunge in that. He's Eliav. And he must be an impressive figure. Because he comes forward, and Shmuel Anavi takes a horn with the oil, and he wants to anoint him. In other words, he's so impressive that one of the greatest Neviim that ever lived, right, 
the one of whom we sing on Friday night, right? Moshe Aaron Bechorav U Shmuel Bechoreshimo. Shmuel, in some ways, is on a higher level than Moshe and Aaron. Shmuel and Avi looks at him and he thinks he's supposed to be the king. I promise you, I promise you, that if Yeshai brought me to the door, Shmuel and Avi said, nah, there must be another guy. But this is Eliav. And the, the horn won't pour the oil. So Shmuel realizes something's wrong. This isn't the king. And he goes through the sons of Yeshai, which means all the sons of Yeshai, and that makes sense. If you have a father like Yeshai, who's the father of David Malach, you're going to be an impressive figure. These were impressive individuals. Any one of them could have been king. Why does Eliav not become king? He's the oldest. There's only one other story that we have of Eliav. It's one pasuk, basically. One flaw for a moment. David Amalek, okay, has killed the bear. He slays the lion. He's a brave lad, but he's still a lad. He's a shepherd. And his father sends him, right? The Jews are off at war with the Plishtim, with the Philistines. And David, who's still a boy, is not a warrior. So he gets sent with a donkey, loaded, maybe two donkeys, loaded with food, supplies, for Yeshai's boys who are off at war. And he takes a couple days and he heads up from Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, up to the Gilboa Mountains, Right? We're going to get there eventually this year. It's about an hour and a half journey from here by car. You can imagine how long it takes on a couple of donkeys. And he shows up in the camp. And he greets his brother. Which brother greets him? Eliav. And he's talking to David. And it's good to see each other. They love each other. It's kishmak. You know, the brothers, whatever. And then this noise. Somebody's like bellowing in the valley. Who is that? Goliath. Goliath. And the whole story of Goliath starts. And David Amalek says, why is nobody going out to fight him? Who is this uncircumcised who brings shame to the Jewish people? What's going on here? And Eliav, it says, Eliav. Eliav gets annoyed with David Amalek. The little pitchka. You? Now what David says is right. But Eliav gets annoyed. There's the only other story and therefore the only explanation as to why Eliav. Eliav does not become the king of the Jewish people because he has an anger issue. Now, because it's a story that only happens for one verse, for two words, he's not a raging lunatic. He just gets annoyed a little too easily. He's got a character flaw. And he doesn't work on that character flaw. Do you understand what this means? If he had succeeded in fixing that one character flaw, we'd be singing Eliav Melech Yisrael instead of David Melech Yisrael. We'd be talking about Malchut Beit Eliav. It wouldn't rhyme as well, but sometimes you have a character flaw and it's deep inside and you barely pay attention to it. It's a root. It's a root of wormwood. It's, it's, it's something, it's a little piece of poison inside of you that you don't even know is there. Sarah has it. And Hashem says, you got to find that and you got to get rid of it. Right? What does the Rambam say? The Rambam in Hilchos Tshuva says, in Perek Zion, Allah Gimel, Chovale Pashpesh Gam B'Deot HaRaot. We're going to learn in Hilchos Deot how important it is to take accounting of what you do. The good things that you do. You want to grow in learning? What's the first thing you have to do if you want to grow in learning? What's the first thing you have to do? Nope. You want to grow in learning? Pardon? 
You have to figure out where you are. Where are you now? You want to lose weight. What's the first thing you do if you want to lose weight? What's your weight? What's the next thing you have to do? What do you want to weigh? And then the third thing you have to do, you have to figure out how to get there. Okay. And we'll get to how to do that when we get to El Chodeo. So what does that mean? I have to figure out where I am. Well, I want to grow my relationship with Hashem. What does that mean now? Where am I now? And people will do this. You'll think about how much am I learning and how much more could I be learning. We don't spend enough time thinking about what we need to fix. What are our negative character traits? Says the Rambam, you got to think it. Now I'm not talking, like if you're a kleptomaniac, so then you've got an issue and you need to deal with it. And maybe you need some help and some therapy. There's nothing wrong with that. And people have big issues. I'm not worried about the big issues. Because when you have a big issue, it becomes apparent. You know you have to deal with it. Your parents don't have to deal with it. Your friends don't have to deal with it. If you have good friends, you're doing good things, you'll figure it out. It's the little things. It's coming to the dining room and like somebody forgot to turn the air conditioning off and you're like, why couldn't they turn the air conditioning on? That's an innocent comment. What's the big deal? It's just a little bit of complaining, right? One of the biggest mistakes that Jewish people made in the desert was the mitonim. They have so much going for them. They're getting mana from everything and they're still complaining. That's a character flaw. It's something you can work on. It's something you can beat. I sent a video out to both lists, to Shana Bet and Shana Alt. Because for the second time in just a week, I go into the bathroom to go to the bathroom, you know, and there's no toilet paper. Now I'm smart enough, I've been here 16 years, I check before I sit down. So there's no toilet paper roll. It takes me exactly five seconds. You go into the sink, you take out a toilet roll, you put it in, come on. But this is like the second time in a week, that's ridiculous. That means somebody, and I don't want to know who it is, didn't pay attention. You're not an evil person. If I said to you, listen, could you do me a favor and put the toilet paper, of course you would do it. Who wouldn't do that? What's the big deal? You just don't think about it. That's a character flaw. That's a lack of sensitivity for your fellow human being. It's such an easy chesed. You put in a toilet paper roll, the next person won't have to do it. And more importantly, if he gets stuck in there, he won't be embarrassed after saying there's no toilet paper, whatever it might be. How many mitzvahs do you do just by doing a simple thing? That's a character flaw. Got to work on those character flaws. And I'll tell you something. I'll give you one last example because it's getting late. I'll give you one last example, right? Do you know the story of Mipi Boshet? I'll bet most of you don't know the story even though you should learn Tanakh. Okay, you know the story, right? Okay. So, Shmuel Navi, David Amela. Things go bad. David Amelech has a son. His name is Avshalom. And Avshalom is not happy for reasons that we'll also get to in Hilchodeah. And he rebels against his father David. This, is, this breaks David's heart. Because he loves Avshalom. Avshalom is what... He's that strapping, handsome, charismatic. He's going to be the guy. He actually thought Avshalom would be Melech Yisrael. Not Shlomo Melech. And Avshalom took a different path because of a character flaw that he allowed to fester. So he rebels, and David is sent away. And he's forced to flee. Literally over that ridge line there, the Navi describes it. Now, there's a fellow by the name of Mipi Boshet. And Mipi Boshet, according to Chazal, is the grandson of Shaul HaMelech. There is one opinion, I believe, that says he's the son. We're going to call him the grandson of Shaul HaMelech. And he doesn't join David. But he has a servant. 
והנה ציווה נער מפי בושת לקראתו. ציווה, who is basically some kind of a servant, you know, the assistant to מפי בושת, right? I'm putting aside the name מפי בושת and what that means for another time, okay? And he comes to David Amalek. And David Amalek says, where's your master? Now, I should add that Shaul and his family were not exactly fans of David Amalek. Shaul thought David was trying to usurp his kingdom. He tried to kill him. And his family supported him. And when Shaul was killed in battle with Yonatan, David's beloved friend, and everything happened, Mipibosheh was left. And David treated him with kindness. It wasn't just that, that he, he, he went out of his way. He took care of him. He fed him. So if there's anyone in the kingdom who should be grateful to David Melch, it should be Mipibosheh. He should have been shechted along with everybody else. But he wasn't. So he's surprised. Where's Miki Boshet? Why is the guy who I did so much good to, why is he not here? So what does Tzivay say? Right? He says, Hinei Yoshev Yerushalayim. Miki Boshet is sitting in Jerusalem. Ki amar hayom yashivu li Beit Yisrael t'manlachut avi. He's waiting for you to fail. Av shalom now and you, you're going to have a battle. There are different ways to understand this. You'll kill each other off and I'm going to get to be king again. And I'll rebuild the kingdom of my father or my grandfather Shaul. That's a pretty serious thing. If that's true, you know what? You can have the inheritance of Shaul. You can have the field we're talking about, whatever it might be. Okay. That's in Perak Tet Zayin. In Perak Yutet, David HaMelech finally runs into Mipi Boshet. Okay? And he says to Mipi Boshet, why didn't you come to join me? Why did you stay in Yishalayim to join Avshalom? Like, you're married by Malchus. My servant tricked me. Right? I'm lame. I've got a, an injury. I can't walk. So I was going to get a donkey and come join you. Right? But he took my donkey and then he came to you because he wanted my inheritance and he told you this story, he lied. And he said that I didn't want to come because whatever, it's believable because I'm the son, grandson of Shaul. So now you're David Amalek. Now let's think about this. You've just gone through the most horrendous experience of your life maybe. Your son rebelled against you. You had to fight a civil war. You were kicked out of your kingdom. Your, your, your own concubines were taken from you and slept with by your son. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And then in the end, your son, who you still loved, was murdered by, by Yoav ben Zerah. Terrible. And now this guy comes. What do you do? Mipi Boshet says, I didn't. Tziva says, I did. Two guys. What do you do? So what does David Melch do? Right? And he says, Mipi Boshet says, right? All of my father's house, they just wanted to kill you. And you fed me. You think I would, I would not want to be with you? I never did this. Amalti, right? So what does he say? What does David Amalti say? You can split the inheritance. You take half and Siva takes half. Now, by the way, maybe somebody learned this in the Gemara. Two people, each of them say it's mine. What do we do? Yachloku. Anybody remember whose opinion that is? You can look this up actually in Bob Metzi and Perak Beis. Pardon? Sumchus. This is Sumchus' opinion. 
According to Moshe Rishonim, we don't pass like Sumchas. So that's what he says. Yachloku, you take half and you take half. What's the problem with that? It's a problem, but okay. But you know what's unbelievable about this? And we're almost done. Unbelievable. The Gemara in Shabbos says the following. This is Gemara in Shabbos and Danmut Nunvav. You can look it up. When David HaMelech says to Mipi Boshet, the grandson of Shaul, remember, he's not sure if Mipi Boshet is right, that I really meant to come and I was tricked, or Tziva is right, that he just stayed there and wanted to join your enemies. When he said, when David HaMelech says, split it up, a batkol came out, a heavenly voice, and said, because of this moment, Rechavam and Yeravam. Rechavam is the son of Shlomo HaMelech. Yeravam rebels against him. Everybody knows what happens. The ten tribes, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. This is the beginning of the end for the Jewish people. Chorban it all starts. It starts with this moment. This is unbelievable. The kingdom will be split because of this. The Jewish world will come undone. Unbelievable. Now let's think about this for a minute. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a big deal? David HaMelech said, look, I don't know who's right. You're right, you're right. Split it up. Why is that such a big deal? Says Rav Avigdor Nevenzal of Yisichot. Unbelievable. What was the issue with David HaMelech? If he tells them, one of them is right and one of them is wrong. They cannot both be right. And David HaMelech has to decide what to do. But he's exhausted. Now I'm... Far be it for me to criticize David HaMelech. David HaMelech is David HaMelech. But when the Tanakh shares a story with us, we have to try to understand it on our level. So I'm not a, a, a casting aspersions on David, and I'm not saying David is like you and me. But within the context of Tanakh, David HaMelech is exhausted. He's having the worst day of his life. He doesn't know what to do. He says, you know what, just split it. What character flaw, barely there, is hidden in that decision? Laziness. Laziness. What should he do? Again, it's not for me to say with David but Chazal said this. He should say, we're going to think about this. He should delay the decision. He's not ready to make a decision. Now, David Melech, the last thing you would call David Melech is lazy. David Melech gets up in the middle of the night to learn Torah. David Melech fights wars, takes the Philistines out. He's unbelievable. David Melech wants to build the base of Mikdash. Hashem says, not enough. He says, okay, you can start building the base of Mikdash. Hashem says to not enough. you can't do that. He can't build the base of Mikdash. Kum Malayla, get up and go tell him he can't build the base of Mikdash. And before she may ask, why does Natan have to get up in the middle of the night? Go tell him in the morning he can't build the base of Mikdash. Because this is David Melech. When David Melech has a chance to do a mitzvah, he's so excited, he's already stockpiling wood. You can't wait till the morning. Half the thing will be built. He's David Melech. David Melech is lazy. It was such a bare floor, you couldn't even discern it, but it was there. And because he didn't find it, and because he didn't root it out, it began to grow. And it took generations. Until the son of Shlomo, nearly a hundred years later. But that little gem of a character flaw destroyed everything we had. You have to find the flaws, and you have to root them out. Is it judgmentalness? Is it that you complain? Is it you know, that moment where there's a book next to your makom and you don't know whose it is, but you're too busy. That's a character flaw. I come into the base manager. I don't get to sit in the base manager as much as you guys do. I come in. I come to my desk. Sometimes I find a safer there. There's a mitzvah. I shouldn't put a mitzvah there. 
I pick it up and see who it is. If I figure out who it is, I take it over to him. It's 60 seconds. I walk into the toilet. Envision a toilet. You have toilet paper, you have a toilet. What other item is in the toilet? A toilet brush. So you walk into a bathroom and somebody left skid marks. It's not pleasant. There's two issues there. One issue is the person who left it there, turn around, be a mensch, leave it like a mensch. This whole yeshiva, all the Rambams we learn, all the Torah we learn, wow, burning up the heavens. If you can't turn around to clean up after yourself, you have a character flaw. You can't have yeshiva like that. You know, you make a comment, you think it's funny, everybody laughs. But there's one guy in the room, he doesn't think it's so funny. You hurt his feelings, but you don't know that. And nobody else notices that, except for that guy. That's a character flaw. You miss something. One of the many goals of this year is that we will build ourselves as a community that finds those little things and makes it better. And that work begins in El. And that's what it means, Atem Mitzavim. You're standing. You've got to slow down, take stock of ourselves. Where are we standing and where do we want to get to and how are we going to get there? Pick one thing. One thing. Nobody else can tell you what that is because nobody else knows. Find one thing that you know deep down you could work on. Even if it's a little thing. Start with the little things. Make your bed in the morning. Have your room clean before of Noah masks. Go to the bathroom and see somebody's shampoo fell. Put it up. Be a mensch. You're brushing your teeth. Don't let it fall on the other guy's thing. Don't leave your junk in the... It's on and on and on. And when we all start to work on these things, the whole world changes. And that's why Parshat Nitzavim is always in Elul leading up to Rosh Hashanah. Food for thought on Nitzavim. I want to wish everybody the most wonderful Shabbat.